Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we have Harry Verhoeven back on the podcast. Harry is a scholar and author of several books, including co-author of Why Comrades Go to War, and he's also a senior advisor to the European Institute of Peace. He's joining us today to speak about a fascinating topic of much interest these days, which is the re-emerging influence of Eritrea, its role in an unstable region, and President Isaias Efreki's ambitions for the country and himself. We hope you enjoy this deep dive as much as we did. Harry, welcome back to the podcast. You're very welcome. So we're, we're here to talk about Eritrea primarily. And I, I want to take a step back first and talk about, you know, really the roots of Eritrea's isolation. I think that the country has been a pariah state, you know, for so long or has been seen that way that I think many forget that it didn't always used to be this way. And at one time, you know, Eritrea was really at the at the vanguard of a lot of African diplomacy. So, so, so where did this really all start? Well, you're absolutely right, Alan. We often get caught up indeed in these, uh, these metaphors, like, for example, Eritrea is the North Korea of Africa, that suggests that the country's been isolated or self-isolated for, for decades. But this is actually not true. Eritrea has really been largely on its own for the last 15 years, starting in 2005, 2006. And to understand what happened there, we need to go back to the Ethiopian-Eritrean War, which, of course, was, was formally ended by the, the Algiers Accords of the year 2000, but after which a period ensued in which Ethiopia and Eritrea tried to mutually destabilize one another. And in the early 2000s, that, that confrontation moved increasingly into the Somali theater, and Ethiopia managed to very successfully maneuver and to highlight Eritrea's links with a whole series of armed actors in the Somali context, but most importantly, of course, the Union of Islamic Courts and what then later became Al-Shabaab. And in the, in, in the wake of that, of these allegations and accusations, with, with some evidence, you know, sanctions were imposed on Eritrea, most importantly by the African Union and then later also by the United Nations. And this was a policy that coincided also with the beginning of the Obama administration, which took a much harder line than the Bush administration on the, on, on the question of, of Eritrea and its, and its regional role. And, you know, it is only from, from that moment onwards that Eritrea really, so to speak, re- retreated back into um, the position, of course, that, that it had been in during the Liberation War, this idea that it was besieged, that the outside world was against it, that its uh, overriding objective should be to try to create some space to maneuver for itself, uh, because confronted with this very hostile outside world, starting with Ethiopia, but... Uh, looming in the background, um, the superpower that is the United States, it had no other option in, it, in its mind than, than, than to do so. But that indeed, as you, as you rightly said, and perhaps we'll talk about more in just a second, was a major reversal from, for example, the 1990s, when Eritrea indeed was not just in, in the vanguard in the Horn of Africa, but played a very important role in, in Africa as a whole, and really had grand continental ambitions, uh, some would say, much too ambitious and, and almost crazily so, but nonetheless, uh, where it was a majorly consequential actor, not just in its own neighborhood, but also, for example, in, in Congo in the mid to, to late 1990s. So it's indeed important to take stock of the, of, of the full period of the 30 years since the Eritrean independence and not just of the last 10 or, or 15 years. 
And I'm sure that uh, President Isaias's uh, ambitions didn't necessarily diminish just because of the success Ethiopia had in, in, in boxing him in. You know, can you describe in a bit more detail exactly how Prime Minister Mele Zanawi, you know, of Ethiopia really did succeed in, in boxing in Eritrea regionally? And then what did President Isaias do as a result? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the key moment here really is to understand, I think, is the 2005 election in Ethiopia, a very disputed election, as you remember, uh, with this horrendous post-election violence in which hundreds of people died just in Addis Ababa and uh, many more in, uh, around, the, around the country. And at that moment in time, it was by no means clear that the United States would, and, and, and more broadly the Western world would necessarily align themselves with, with Ethiopia. They had had until that moment difficult but nonetheless significant relations with Eritrea. Um, and in preceding years, there had been a lot of in-depth strategic talk, for example, about a U.S. base in the context of the global war on terror being hosted by, by Eritrea. Menace's response to 2005, the international criticism this drew, questions about domestic legitimacy, was to go on the offensive. And part of the answer to, to his predicament lay, at least as Menelis and those around him saw him in, in, in Somalia. The ability of the Ethiopian government to frame what happened in Somalia at the time as part of the global war on terror and therefore deserving of the support of the United States and the West more broadly, and at the same time uh, managing to show at least some significant ties between Eritrean intelligence and, as I said, various armed factions in Somalia, the most important of which were the Union of Islamic Courts, managed in many ways to dispel a lot of the criticism that had been forthcoming in the wake of the of the elections and to highlight that Ethiopia really was the credible, trustworthy interlocutor and partner here in the Horn of Africa, and that Eritrea should be considered a spoiler, willing to 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 align its fortunes with uh, with whoever was willing to do its bidding again in its struggle with with Ethiopia. You know, it's in that period of the of the, the last years of the Bush administration when Jindai Frazier was the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, and then you know the early years of the Obama administration when, of course, uh, Susan Rice is the U.S. ambassador to the. Uh, to the United Nations, very strong views on both Eritrea and Ethiopia, that we see this this much stronger alignment between the US and Ethiopia on the one hand, and Eritrea's isolation, as I said, through its withdrawal from IGAD, through African Union sanctions, where Melis also very successfully maneuvered and got the uh, Peace and Security Council of the African Union to adopt uh, sanctions against Eritrea and to recommend that the UN also take similar action uh, this is when the really the, the major breakthrough through happened, and Ethiopia acquired this image as the kind of the beacon of stability, the 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 credible factor in the in the horn. And when Eritrea was seen as the the rotten apple, threatening to spoil developments in Somalia, in Ethiopia, in Djibouti, also uh, in 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 Sudan, and in major ways, in many ways, of course, this was a strategic triumph for for Melis and a and a major setback for for Isaias. But as as so often in in the politics of the Horn, Isaias, from his own perspective, made the most of that difficult predicament of, of isolation and managed it fairly well in the sense that he, he did manage to accomplish his, his most important objectives, which was both the, the, the protection, the safeguarding of, of the country and the survival of his own, of his own regime and with himself at the, uh, at the top of it. Yeah, and, and can you just talk about how he managed to do that? Where, where did he look to? So Isaias, you know, deployed a number of, of strategies, and, and here is where you know the comparison with North Korea makes some sense in the sense that you know a country under under siege, um, you know, that doesn't receive a huge amount of, of development money is also not take it terribly interested in that. 
um, essentially tried to make money from whatever it could. And those were both uh, legal activities. It tried to attract a number of, of investors with not too many questions asked, for example, in, um, in mining. But at the same time, of course, it also engaged in a series of, of sanctions busting activities, many of which were, were rather criminal in, in, in nature, in order to extend both domestic patronage, giving you know, privileged access to, for example, foreign exchange, foreign trips, a number of key positions to, to people important to the regime, um, as well as, of course, in the process, again, creating rather lucrative ties with important brokers, mostly in the, um, in, in, in the Gulf, but also in a series of, of other African states, uh, including, for example, in a place like, like South Sudan and, and, in, and in Uganda, um, and, of course, in, in Sudan. And so Eritrea, in many ways, reverted back to some of the tactics that the, the EPLF had so successfully deployed during the, uh, the Long Liberation War from 1963 to 1991, in which, too, it needed all its creativity, its resourcefulness, to be able to source whatever, whatever it could in terms of weapons, in terms of resources, in terms of support from a range of actors. And, of course, when you're confronted with this kind of situation... Uh, moral concerns, questions of human rights, as I said, of the law, take a back seat. It really is about the, the survival of the, of the regime and, and from the Eritrean perspective, the survival of the country. And this is important to underline that, you know, from an Eritrean perspective, that independence remains more fragile and tenuous than perhaps outsiders sometimes assume it is. And that, that, that therefore it has informed so much of Eritrea's behavior, which has actually been remarkably consistent over the years. It's, it's really in many ways, perhaps been the most, the most consistent and predictable actor in, 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 in the Horn of Africa, in that its objectives hasn't changed. It just changes sometimes the ways in which it tries to, to pursue these. And sometimes these are frowned upon by international actors. But from an Eritrean perspective, this is absolutely imperative that it continues to pursue these uh, partnerships because they're so, so, so essential to, to safeguarding, as I said, the, the country itself and the survival of the government. Yeah, and, and we actually had an earlier podcast this season uh, with Martin Plout where we, we did talk about a lot of these regime survival techniques that, that listeners can go and, and check out. So so another place, you know, where President Isaias, you know, I think was uh, sort of ahead of his times in a way, faced with uh, this sort of regional isolation and squeeze, you know, he looked across the Red Sea and, and tried to build some ties across that into the into the Gulf states. What, what effect did that have on on sort of his overall strategy and you think how he possibly views the region uh, holistically now. That, that's absolutely right, Alan. I mean, he, he's always maintained that. I mean, that was the case during the liberation struggle. I mean, various Eritrean fronts, including the EPLF, but certainly also the ELF, had important ties into the Arab world and in many cases, indeed, into the, into the Gulf specifically by virtue both of the uh, Eritrean diaspora there uh, but also from the perspective of many Arab states, part of the key problem at the Horn of Africa has always been Ethiopia. There's always been this, 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 this very deep-seated, long-standing distrust of Ethiopian hegemony, uh, the perceived or real oppression of, of Muslims and the Arabic language um, in, in, in the Horn of Africa. And so Eritrea has always used that very strategically. Isaiah speaks, speaks Arabic, of course, as do many of his key, key advisors. And so they've They've consistently tried to, to maintain that relationship and invest in it. And Isaias himself has been a very canny operator in terms of playing off various Gulf powers against each other. So, for example, in this period of isolation we just spoke about, starting, let's say, 2006, 2007, Isaias developed uh, very important, I wouldn't say strategic, but nonetheless important relations with Qatar and had a, a, a very good relationship with the then Emir, Hamid bin Khalifa, 
And, you know, that led to, to major friction between Ethiopia and Qatar. And, and that was a very difficult time. You know, there were no diplomatic relations at one point between Qatar and, and Ethiopia. Isaias put a lot of his time and attention with them. But then, you know, as he saw the wind shifting in, in the Gulf, the growing uh, frustration with Qatar as experienced by the Saudis and the Emiratis leading to the withdrawal of ambassadors in 2014, Isaias also began shifting. And he began drawing closer to Saudi Arabia, culminating, of course, in 2014, 2015, um, his decision to essentially allow Saudi and Emirati troops to operate from, from Asab in the context of the war in Yemen. And this was a major strategic moment from, from Isaias' perspective because it effectively allowed him to break out of his regional isolation. He was no longer just in cahoots with some, as I said, some arms dealers in Dubai and the, and the Qatari Emir, but he was now a partner of the two most important Gulf Arab states, the UAE and Saudi, um, it paid major financial dividends for him. And above all, of course, it put major pressure on Ethiopia, which in those years, in 2015, 2016, 17, was really panicking about how to deal with this uh, increasing geopolitical proximity between the Gulf and the Horn and the apparent militarization of the Red Sea over which Ethiopia seemed to have little or no leverage. And Ethiopian designs for region integration were always premised, or de facto premised, on an absence of extensive external involvement, certainly not from Gulf Arabs, uh, what started happening after 2015 majorly upset that. And so this was really a, a very shrewd strategic move by, by Isaias that then also, of course, begin ushering in some of the broader geopolitical changes we've seen in the region over the last couple of, uh, couple of years, where Eritrea has gone from being so isolated and a bystander to, in many ways, being one of the, the, the forces most influential in shaping uh, the region. This alignment that Isaias um, designed with Saudi and the Emirates, of course, should not be understood from his perspective, at least, to be uh, something that is necessarily going to be permanent or for the long haul. Again, this is a, a, a decision, a pragmatic decision he took, which had very little to do with ideology or with, uh, with emotions, but from, him, from his perspective was meant to give him leverage and flexibility in the region to deal with the problem of Ethiopian hegemony. Um, now that this, from his perspective, has been largely addressed, now the challenge is essentially to put some greater distance between himself and Gulf Arab states, which is part of the reason why you've seen Eritrea engage with this idea of a Red Sea Council that the Saudis have been so very keen on, but Eritrea is not about to give up any of its sovereignty or its flexibility. So it will, it will engage, but it will at the same time keep, keep the Gulf states at a distance, and that's where Ethiopia and its alignment with Abiy are so useful for him. It's not just about the TPLF, or not just about Somalia or Sudan, it's also about the Gulf, the Gulf Arabs, and, and after this period of relative proximity where he needed them, now is the time to put a bit more distance between himself and, and them again to pursue his, his same objectives. Again, the cons consistency is the key word here. So I think you've painted a, a really wonderful picture of um, President Isaias and you know, his sort of skepticism of very deep alliances and, and sort of losing his own independence in the process and how that how that shapes, you know, these different regional ties. And I do want to talk more about the the Red Sea stuff later because it is it is really fascinating. Um, first of all, so so obviously uh, the changes in this region are seen, you know, largely and, and correctly as the change in Ethiopia, you know, going from the uh, TPLF and EPRDF to now Prime Minister Abi, and of course, the revolution in Sudan, but particular this change in Ethiopia, how did that look like from Asmara's perspective? Like, obviously, we've talked a lot about how it looks like from the Ethiopian side of things. How did it look like from Asmara's perspective? And how did Isaias really use that to his advantage? 
Well, from the from the Eritrean perspective, of course, what has happened in the last uh, three years, three and a half years now, was both a confirmation, long-standing beliefs about the fundamental instability of the EPRDF party state and and the ideas on which it was premised. So in that sense, it was an ideological vindication, ideological victory, because Isaias had long uh, been very critical of what had happened in Ethiopia. Even before the Ethiopian-Eritrean war, he and Meles disagreed very much on on what a future Ethiopia should should look like and how Meles could go about addressing questions of instability, of class difference, of, of the oppression of certain cultures and languages in the country. But of course, it was also a major political victory because, of course, especially since the Ethiopian-Eritrean War, um, from Isaias' standpoint, it was a combination of of TPLF arrogance and American support for what he saw as such a misguided project for Ethiopia itself and the broader region um, that it had been the fundamental obstacle, as he saw it, to to political order and to peace. And he's been very clear about that. Again, Isaias has been remarkably consistent and the people around him in his denunciation of, of, of the TPLF EPRDF party state and had always said that, you know, because of the fundamental contradictions within Ethiopia, such as, for example, the, the Oromo question, protests as the ones we saw in 2014, 15, 16, 17, helping, of course, bring Abiy Ahmed to power, uh, had been entirely foreseeable and would ultimately contribute to the instability of the broader region. So from that standpoint, you know, when Abiy came, came to power, of course, Isaiah saw the opportunity and, sa- and, and made it as his primary goal to ensure the permanent marginalization, if not the destruction, of the TPLF. But at the same time, of course, equally crucial for him to make sure that whatever replaced the TPLF EPRDF party state would not be just another resumption of Ethiopian hegemony by another name. Because again, this is the central problem as far as Eritrea and Isaias are concerned, and arguably even more many other of the of the countries in the Horn, of course. But the, you know, how do we deal with this outsized country at the middle of this region and its its enduring ambitions for regional dominance? And so, I you know when you look at what has happened over the last three years, you could say from Isaias's perspective, so far so good. You know, the fact that Ethiopia is so preoccupied with internal difficulties, but that they, at the moment, are not spilling over in ways that destabilize Eritrea is great. It means Ethiopia is so preoccupied with its own problems, it can't really project regional force. Abiy has drawn very close to Isaias in many ways, to the point of aligning their foreign policies on quite a number of issues. Again, major win for Isaias, who can pose as the elder statesman and whisper into the ears of the Ethiopian prime minister. And thirdly, of course, the Tigray war, uh, which again, from Isaias's perspective, was both inevitable, uh, but probably also necessary to deal with the movement. As I said, he holds uh, singularly responsible for many of the problems in, in the region, whether in, in Somalia, in South Sudan, of course, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and whose removal, he would, he would argue, is a, is a necessary requirement to make progress on, on any question of, of political order and, and political stability. In, in that sense, of course, you know, the, as I said, that partnership with Abiy, which again should be understood as, a, as, as not a permanent one, but as something that at the moment serves the, the purposes of Isaias and of Eritrea, uh, that partnership has been very, has been very fruitful and, and, and lucrative. And what is happening in terms of humanitarian fallout in Tigray and the wider region might be unpleasant to the extent that we need to comment about it from the Eritrean perspective, but it's a, it's a small sacrifice in the greater scheme of things, as, as I think the Eritrean government sees it. Isaias always prides himself on this longer-term thinking and the belief that sometimes a very, uh, very painful sacrifice needs to be made to get somewhere, and 
people will probably see the conflict and everything that's happening as as part of that. Yeah. Now, you know, on this question of Ethiopian hegemony, I mean, it's very interesting because, of course, it begs the question, um, you know, if Asmara's main concern is preventing Ethiopian hegemony, of course, Abi and Isaias have been seen as allies. And so just it begs the question of really what's in it for Ethiopia, um, if that's the strategic objective of Isaias. You know, and of course, there's the alliance against the TPLF. But, you know, why else would, would Abi go along with this? Um, and of course, you know, oftentimes naivete is offered as an explanation. But do you think that's really sufficient? It's not sufficient. I, th- I do think it is part of the of the story. Um, I think that uh, from the evidence that we have about how the Prime Minister of Ethiopia makes his decisions and the people around him, that that's a fairly narrow circle. There's certainly not the same degree of institutionalization as was the case under the under the EPRDF, certainly not in, in EPRDF early period. And so I think there is you know, someone who's, who's actually never conducted a foreign policy and who's made a number of mistakes in, in the process. But, but secondly, I also think that from, from Abi's perspective too, this is a tactical alliance which he still thinks ultimately will pay off and will help both consolidate power in his own country and then put him in, in a better position to lead the region as he sees it. I think personally that that's a miscalculation. I think the partnership with, with Eritrea is fundamentally unstable and there is a fundamental contradiction there in what uh, both of them ultimately want. The compromises Abias had to make, meanwhile, most importantly regarding Ethiopian sovereignty and obviously the, the lives of his, of his Tigrayan population, are extraordinary and unnecessarily compromises of concessions that one can recover from. I'm talking here not not, not so much domestic domestic politics, but even in terms of a of a regional vision. I think the backlash this has generated in Sudan. I know the worries that exist in in other regional partners, not even to mention, of course, in 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 Europe and in North America, about the way he has gone about it may mean that. Uh, what he saw as a as a as a shortcut to to getting to his his overriding objectives may actually have have compromised his ability to ever get there, but we'll have to see about that. Uh, but I think it's fundamentally not just naivete; it's it's a strategic miscalculation of where exactly interests are and how certain interests with with other parties, in this case with Eritrea, simply cannot be be reconciled in this in this framework or this mode of thinking. Yeah, and the scary thing about that is that sounds like that would come to a head eventually, um, and that might not be necessarily very pretty or easy to deal with for the actors involved. Quickly on this, before we we jump ahead to, to other questions, I'm just wondering on the Tigray War, you know, do you buy the argument, which is sometimes heard a lot, that paints President Isaias almost as a conspiratorial sort of puppet master almost, that he was the one who sort of plotted this and he was the prime actor? Um, do you think that takes too much agency away from, from Abi and the actors and um, Mekele for and Tigray, um, and and do you think Eritrea will actually pull out of Tigray now that Abi has officially asked him to do so? On the first question, I mean, there's, there's there, I mean, you know, th- this war was caused by many different things, and indeed there has to be some responsibility taken by the TPLF and the TPLF leadership in particular uh, for both steering a confrontational course, but I think also for making a number of strategic miscalculations in terms of the the balance of forces, if you like, and, and what a what a conflict would look like. I think there's also no no question that, as you said, kind of almost a caricature of Ravisayas as the as the puppet master is, is not a very helpful way of thinking about it. Uh, as I said, Abi has his own strategic calculations. Many of the Amhara nationalists who've been very supportive of the war have their own strategic calculations and their own leverage 
over the over the prime minister. So to reduce all of this to Isaias is is of course a stretch. Um, but this is not to say, of course, that Isaias has not played a majorly important role um, in reaching out in to to Abi in confirming, I think, a lot of the biases that Abi has, saying a number of things he was right to think Abi would like to hear or I would, would like to believe in taking advantage in a number of important ways from Ethiopia's weakness and divisions. For example, there is some discussion, as you probably know, Alan, up to what extent did the full extent of Eritrean troops currently on Ethiopian territory was really what Ethiopia requested you know, there's some evidence, for example, that suggested the deployment of at least some divisions in certain parts of, of Tigray were facts on the ground created by Eritrea without informing Ethiopia or informing them very late in the game. Not quite what the what the battle plan was that was initially uh, drawn up. Again, this shouldn't this should surprise no one who's, who actually knows President Desaias, his track record, the way Eritrea sees its foreign policy, the way it understands military force as a natural extension of what the president says and and the political actions its its diplomats and its advisors uh, undertake, um, and so in that sense I bring it back to you know as I said Prime Minister Abiy's strategic mistakes and miscalculations, thinking that because he is the prime minister of such a, a much bigger country, a much older country, that surely Eritrea wouldn't do certain things that it would not be so crazy to uh, to engage in certain type of behavior, except that the tracker shows that Eritrea does that. Eritrea did that in the 1990s, trying to simultaneously push for regime change in Congo and in Sudan, and it nearly succeeded in both. So it's important to remember that. Again, the breathtaking ambition, the willingness to to push it all the way. Eritrea's achievements, of course, and the EPLF's achievements during the War of Liberation against Africa's biggest army, backed by a superpower. I mean, you know, this this, this history tells us <laughs> a lot, and, and Prime Minister Abiy doesn't seem to have taken that into into the consider into consideration, certainly not sufficiently. So, on the question of agency, again, let's let's yes, absolutely. Let's 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 bring something back to to Ethiopian actors and their misreading of the situation, rather indeed than than saying that this was all indeed some some grand conspiracy by by Eritrea's president, who who yes, as I said, reinforced certain things, engineered certain things, but it's still up to others to to walk into a certain trap or to respond. In this way or that way, uh, that's that, you know, that's their choice. That's not their choice, responsibility or fault. Sure. And and do you think President Isaias would be willing to pull out his troops if Abi did ask him to do so and meant it? Um, yes, he may think that uh, for a number of tactical purposes, it would be useful to withdraw some troops for certain areas, for example, where he doesn't necessarily see a threat coming immediately from the TPLF and where he has some degree of confidence that Ethiopian troops could safely take over. I think he may be inclined to do so. I think in other parts of Tigray, uh, he will undoubtedly keep them there. A, because it also serves uh, Abiy's purpose, because you know the, the emergence or the intensification of increasingly uh, well-organized and motivated resistance, as is already happening and has been scaling up, of course, as you know, in recent weeks and months, uh, it does constitute a threat both to Addis and to, to, to Asmara. And there may be th- third areas, if you like, where Isaias decides to pull back, not because there is no threat, but exactly because there is a threat and he wants to remind Abiy that ultimately Eritrean muscle is needed, uh, given the weakness of the Ethiopian security forces at this moment in time and how, how devastating this war has been to the integrity and cohesion of the, of the Ethiopian National Defense Forces. So he may, he may decide in different parts of, of, of let's say, occupied Tigray to do different things, 
again, all serving the, the, that, that same overriding objective of increasing his own maneuverability, limiting that of Ethiopia, reminding Abiy of his usefulness, and keeping an eye on the on on the TPLF and its ability to to strike back. Um, and do you have any concerns yet about a falling out between the two? I mean, you, you've written a book, Why Comrades Go to War, which of course wasn't about this context. Um, it, it's about Congo, in case uh, listeners are interested. But but also you do have the history of, you know, Meles and Isaias having been close war comrades. And of course, that fell out with very long lasting consequences. So, so, so do you have concerns yet about how this could head between Isaias and Abi? Oh, absolutely. I, I think there's a, there's a major worry there. And, and again, of course, Isaias was part of that coalition in Congo, so he needed experienced the, the comrades falling out twice already. But I think especially, of course, the, the Amhara nationalist element here in the equation is, is, is particularly volatile, let's say. Um, you know, on the one hand, as I said, there's clear tactical alignment between Isaias Abi and, and, let's say, the Amhara nationalist camp because of the, the common enemy, the TPLF. But when we think a bit further ahead, let's say, for example, they did manage to squash Tigrayan resistance and, and, and somehow pacify Tigray, I think unlikely, but let's assume for a second that they did. Uh, then what? Uh, because then, of course, uh, at that moment in time, you would have an emboldened Amhara nationalism uh, that has extended its reach and, of course, has, has changed the borders of Tigray as we know it as we know it today. We know that many people in the Amhara nationalist camp continue to question, of course, whether Eritrea should ever been been allowed to be independent, who continue to have very fond memories of Ethiopian empire and Ethiopian influence extending to the Red Sea and to the Indian Ocean. From Isaiah's perspective, that would be profoundly threatening. That's what he fought against, of course, during the War of Liberation. And, and, and very similarly, of course, from the Amhara nationalist perspective, Isaias has been responsible for so much damage in the region. So you, you can feel almost the conflict already beginning to, to build there. Um, and Isaias will undoubtedly be profoundly worried about that. Um, and will at some point indeed have to try to either work on Abbey to, to do something about that, that threat in case that scenario would materialize, uh, or he would have to switch, switch, uh, switch tactics and, for example, say, well, uh, here I am going to pivot back to, to Sudan, and it's by, by being closely aligned with Sudan and Egypt, for example, that we will take care of, of the Amhara nationalists, because after all, it's their region that's bordering Sudan at the moment. So... Uh, you know, almost certainly, you know, this is not the war to end all wars. This is a conflict that will result in further imbalances. And, and as Isaiah has also reminded us in his last uh, long interview with his own media, uh, he said verbatim, I believe, that, you know, conflict or war or something is, is always the outcome or the result of, of various imbalances. This is classic Isaiah's thinking. Uh, and of course, what this conflict is doing is creating new imbalances and therefore more war. And, and Isaiah is, is profoundly aware of that. And and perhaps the only one, uh, unfortunately, who's thinking ahead about these issues. Yeah, so so let's broaden out the lens a bit uh, more. Um, it's something I really wanted to ask you about was, you know, what's sometimes called the tripartite alliance. This is the the alliance between um, Isaias, Abi, and President Farmajo in, in Mogadishu, so Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Somali leaders. Um, there's a lot of intrigue around this. You know, sometimes you hear it derided as an axis, you know, an axis of autocracies. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Isaias has a vision of political order a vision of a political order, which is, you know, has been remarkably stable. I mean, what is he trying to achieve here, and where do you think this goes? Well, I think I think that that tripartite alliance or the uh, the Horn of Africa Council, it has many different names, serves a number of purposes, both short term and a bit a bit longer term from from Eritrea's perspective. The first, as I already said, is a signal towards the Gulf and a signal towards Sudan and Egypt not to take Eritrea for granted. 
to make sure that Eritrean interests are respected, are looked after, Eritrean flexibility is honored. At the first level, it serves the function need of, of signaling. Second effect, of course, of this, of this alignment is the discrediting of EGAD. Isaias has long been extremely skeptical of, of EGAD. Um, he was skeptical of, of EGAD during the liberation struggle because he found it completely missed the point and didn't serve any political purpose in terms of addressing the real problems or of the Horn of Africa. He was skeptical after the year 2000 when he saw EGAD as essentially an instrument of Ethiopian hegemony. And you know, there's a reason why Eritrea twice pulled out of, of EGAD and continues to believe that it, the way it's currently set up is not conducive to Eritrean interest and to Eritrea being heard in a way that, that he believes Eritrea should be heard. So the discrediting of EGAD in which it should be worth pointing out, you know, the, the West has poured a lot of financial and, and political resources over the years, despite its, its ambivalent track record, um, is a major objective in and of itself. And thirdly, of course, it's from, from his perspective, as I said, to try to subvert potentially Ethiopian hegemony uh, by tying himself very closely to these two leaders from Maju and Abi, both of which have incredible domestic difficulties, which Ishayas do not seem to have, does not seem to have who are far more new to the international scene than, than he is and far less well-versed in international diplomacy in the broad sense of the word, including what security services do and what, what armies do be behind the scenes. And so it's his ability to both acquire an, an, an image of, of, of statesmanship, of regional leadership, but also, as I said, indeed, to try to work and influence uh, those two important leaders in the belief that if he can deal with, with, with Ethiopia and Somalia in a way that he sees as more conducive to Eritrean interest, he can prevent a return to the scenario that we saw, as I said, 10, 15 years ago, where, where the combination of Ethiopia and Somalia spelled, spelled trouble for Eritrea and led to that uh, long period of being, of being isolated and put under pressure and, and regime change agendas in Asmara being, uh, being pursued. Now, it does not mean, you know, all these things, you know, make it important, but it does not, again, mean that this is for him something permanent or long-term. Um, there was a time when Isaiah seemed to believe in, in, in long-term region integration, invested a lot in it, and that's, again, that's the 1990s, when Igad was, was destined to become something different, uh, when there was a lot of talk of the so-called Greater Horn of Africa, which would have included Sudan, Rwanda, Uganda, maybe Congo, and in which Eritrea would be at the center of this, this, this model of regional integration in which these party state, these, these powerful liberation movements would develop shared understandings of political order and economic integration. But where, of course, Eritrea got very badly burned. It got badly burned because of the debacle in Congo. Sudan, there was no regime change. And ultimately, indeed, as you said, there was the falling out between comrades, the war of brothers between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And after that, I think Isaias drew the lesson that this was the biggest strategic mistake he had made his entire life. And so, you know, when, when he's trying to have this tripartite alliance, what he doesn't want is a repeat of, of the 1990s. So the tripartite alliance, and again, is, is, a, is a means to an end, an important means at the moment, but, but only, only a means. And again, if the context changes, Isaias is likely to change the instrument, again, to pursue the same, the same objectives. Uh, can, can I just press you on that? Like, if this is a means to an end, what, what is the end? What is the ultimate goal for Isaias? Or is there one? Is it more just an unending process that sort of puts Eritrea's interests first? Isaias, to put it in IR terms, is a, is a realist. Uh, force makes right. Force is ultimately what determines international affairs. Balance of power of ideas. I, I referred earlier to this idea of conflict as a result of imbalances. That's, that's exactly uh, Isaias' thinking. And so 
within that context to safeguard Eritrean independence, to protect his his government and the state that he has built. That is what you know what what is really the overriding goal, and that's I think how he would like to see his his legacy. You know, as I said, at a certain moment in time, he had this ambition to to change the horn as a whole and Africa as a whole. I I think he's 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 walked back from that after the, as I said, the experiences of the late '90s, early 2000s. But he certainly hasn't changed his, his commitment to 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 Eritrea and Eritrean independence. And uh, again, people sometimes find that hard to uh, to engage with and and hard to take seriously. But I think if you actually again look at Eritrea's actions, um, it's it's remarkably consistent and predictable. In many ways, it's it's the most rational in, in when you understand its its own logic. Um, and in that sense, indeed, not the most destabilizing of the of the countries in the Horn. It's often the unpredictability, and the fact that people say and do very different things uh, that, that that creates instability. In Eritrea's case, that that that's simply not true. And you know, how do you think he views these sort of pushes, uh, which he mentioned earlier, for sort of uh, Red Sea alliances, perhaps some institutionalization there? Do you think he ultimately will, you know, sort of tactically play with those? Do you think his eyes would also sort of resist any multilateral institution uh, in, in that respect also? Absolutely. You know, he's not going to swap, he's not going to replace Ethiopian hegemony with Saudi hegemony. Notwithstanding his nice words in recent years for Saudi Arabia, you know, Isaias has major questions privately held, of course, about uh, the nature of political order in, in Saudi Arabia uh, or in the UAE for that, for that matter. Uh, he's not a very big believer in, in kingdoms, uh, as you may understand from Eritrea's own, own, own history. He's a very committed leftist, unlike you know, the regimes across the, the Red Sea. So you know, there's major uh, difference there, and, and he has no, no interest in somehow uh, giving Saudi a primary role in the Horn of Africa, you would probably see it as, again as a threat. But the Gulf has always served, the pur- served two purposes. On the one hand, uh, it's a place where he can extract rents, uh, financial, sometimes weapons, uh, and, and sometimes diplomatic support. And two, indeed, its ability to use the Gulf to, to send political signals to, to Ethiopia, but as I said, also to Sudan and, and Egypt, and, and to some extent to, to Somalia. Do not take me for granted. Don't think that we're we're permanently aligned. Uh, you'll have to work with me in these and these areas because I have an alternative on the other side of the Red Sea that, that, that simply you do not. But that's very important to, to understand. So again, this, this, this Red Sea Council, will Eritrea show up for meetings? Perhaps. Will it continue to publicly express support for it? It will. Will it at the same time make sure it doesn't in any way compromise uh, Eritrean sovereignty? You bet. Right. So it seems like the sort of political order he has in mind is is one that sort of lacks any sort of very strong institutions whatsoever. Is that a good is that a good summary? Uh, yes, absolutely to the extent that it constrains him that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, as an individual but also as a as a country that's a, that, that's a problem. And with that of course he's not alone. I mean historically again countries in the Gulf but also in the Horn have always been very hostile towards uh regional multilateralisms to some extent even towards global multilateralism have often preferred bilateralism rather than strong institutions. I mean, there's a fair amount of revisionism, for example, in Ethiopia that depicts Ethiopia as a great supporter of, of multilateralism. The truth is, of course, only when it's in Ethiopia's interest. Again, Isaias is the most, is the clearest and perhaps most radical player in this regard, and, but he's certainly not alone. Before I let you go, and we're, we're really kind of out of time, I wanted to ask you about the border disputes and, and worsening relationships between Sudan and Ethiopia. Now, of course, you know, on one hand, while Abiy sort of strengthened ties with Asmara, you know, his ties with 
with Sudan and these countries form a bit of a triangle, you know, those have deteriorated between Addis and, uh, and Khartoum. You know, in last time you were on this podcast, you know, we haven't even talked about it yet, but it was very much about the GERD negotiations dealing with the Ethiopian Nile Dam. And this is part of that, too. So, so, so what's really happened as part of this broad regional picture where, where this old border dispute that hadn't really caused much problems between Meles and Bashir sort of uh, flares up and is threatening, you know, a, a war between two of the big countries in the Horn of Africa? Well, I think from the Sudanese perspective, uh, there's really two major problems here. There's a broadly shared sentiment in Khartoum, among the security services, let's say, but also amongst many civilians, that Ethiopia under Abiy has taken Sudan for granted, is not trying to understand Sudan's interests and understanding either of the region, of the border, or broader border security questions. And is not making many efforts to do so either. And, and I think some of this was a bit uh, obfuscated by or obscured by, you know, by Abiy's uh, apparently successful mediation, in, as you remember, in, in the summer of, of 2019, when, when Ethiopian intervention seemed to play a role in helping to set up Sudan's transition institutions. And, and Abiy tried to um, talk this up as some kind of majorly successful diplomatic intervention. But in, in many ways, many actors in Sudan don't have the same recollection of those events as, as he does or people in Ethiopia do. Uh, many of them actually were quite critical about the way he personally engaged, not so much some Ethiopian advisors who did pretty well, but he personally. And again, they had the feeling it was a lot about him rather than about Sudan per se. And they feel that this is evidence first and foremost by the GERD, where consistently they feel that a number of points that they've raised, which they feel are, are really genuine, are not just about stalling or playing for time, but are really intrinsically important, have simply not been taken on board by Ethiopia. And that contrary indeed to the time of, of Melles and Bashir, or even Haile Mariam and Bashir, when Ethiopia went out of its way to make, if you like, its dominance, its hegemony acceptable to its, its Sudanese neighbor, that is not happening today. And similarly, of course, you know, as, as Abiy has drawn so much closer to Isaias, this is majorly worrying from a Sudanese perspective. You know, whenever Ethiopian Eritrea has been aligned from the perspective of the Sudanese armed forces, this has spelled major trouble, often even attempts at regime change in Khartoum. And so again, when they've tried to raise this issue, this has been dismissed and, and, and the Sudanese have been told this is not serious and they shouldn't talk about it. Uh, yeah, diplomatically, this is this has backfired majorly on Ethiopia. There really is a sense on the Sudanese side that, um, that Ethiopia is just not an, not, an, not an honest partner anymore. Now, that may or may not be the, me, me the case. I'm, I'm, I'm just... Paraphrasing the Sudanese position and line of thinking here, not not casting any value judgment on that. And you know, the border really is is is, if you like, the the pretext. I mean, there's a number of economic interests on both sides of the border that are important, but I don't think important in and of themselves to cause the kind of conflict we've seen so far and that we may still see in the future. Uh, but in the last year or so, there's again been very little learning on the part of. Uh, of Ethiopian um, of the Ethiopian leadership, it seems, when it comes to handling the Nile file and, and Sudan in particular, uh, which explains why there's been so little progress from 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 on on that on that front. I wanted to ask you sort of one very big uh, question. I uh, apologize if it's almost too big, um, but you know we've seen some really dramatic changes in the Horn, which of course we we is you know what we talk about on this podcast: um, the rise of Abiy, the fall of TPLF, um, the revolution in Sudan, this reemergence of Eritrea. You know the Gulf actors getting increasingly involved. I think amid all that, you know the the fallout from that sort of shift in regional order is something that's still being 
you know, really felt and is still really taking shape. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on, you know, what the sort of post-Meles, post-Bashir regional order might look like, you know, that I think is still taking shape. You know, the horn has always been, in fact, not always, but in, in, in let's say, in recent decades, has, has been continuously in flux. I don't think that people following the horn can say that at any moment in the last five years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, this region has been uh, stable or or predictable. I mean, what's extraordinary is just the, the turnover in the nature of regimes from empires and monarchies to socialist governments to Islamist governments to democratic experiments to hyper-nationalism. We've, we've pretty much seen it all. Uh, and I think, if, if anything, when to say about the future, is I think that the Horn will continue to be this, this great laboratory uh, in, in political experiments, foreign and domestic, and often, of course, the foreign and domestic very tightly linked, and in which, unfortunately, force will continue to play a major, if not the major, role in causing uh, these, these, these alignments and, and realignments. I mean, the degree to which force is part of the political culture um, in this part of the world and seen as a legitimate way of changing the status quo, not just you know, by Isaias and Eritrea, but pretty much by every actor, I think is something to keep in, in, in the back of your minds. And I think one of the mistakes of p- policymakers made in the last couple of years is that on the back of this of this new optimism of the Ethiopian Eritrea rapprochement, apparent transition in Ethiopia, that we again forgot many of those historical lessons about how deep rooted violence is, how deep rooted authoritarianism is, the deep cleavages in society, that we wish they weren't there, so to speak, and that this region was becoming more like other parts of the world, which you know Western policymakers think are more stable, more predictable, easier to understand except that it's not. Outsiders are forced to adapt their expectations and their ways of understanding rather than the other way around. And I, I suspect that will continue to be the case in the future as well, that it's, it's outside templates and, and designs that often come crashing down rather than, than deep, deeply entrenched local, uh, local fault lines and dynamics. Thanks, Harry, for, for coming on the podcast again and for such a, a lengthy discussion. It was great. It's a it's a pleasure to be able to talk about the, about these issues in 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 some detail. Uh, so thank you so much. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Mae Francis.